All right, good morning, guys. Let's uh, flip over to Romans chapter 13. We'll get started this morning, continuing through the book of Romans. A little bit of a, a challenging passage today, or it can be, um, about obedience to the government or subjection to the government. And uh, obviously, uh, from the birth of our nation until now, it's probably been a little bit of a rub uh, for many of us. And so... What I'm hoping to look at uh, in Romans 13 today is not just so much the what, although that's important, but the why. Because the why continues from uh, the beginning of chapter 12. If you remember, we started off in, in uh, chapter 12 as kind of the practical application of everything thus far in Romans, right? So we've, co- we've covered justification by faith, the fact that a person is justified with God or God looks at that person as being completely forgiven and right with him based purely on a trust in what Jesus did at Calvary, right? The foundation for all that we do and we believe, the reason that every one of us is here, it's, there's, there's really one reason. And hopefully it's either to search out because we're looking for or because we found the fact that God's love, as the scripture tells us, that he so loved the world that he gave his son. And the, the, the truth, the core truth of everything that flows out of us and every belief that we have is based on the fact that when Jesus Christ went to Calvary, when he was crucified out of jealousy, right? We know that. Pilate revealed that for us. That the Jews crucified Jesus because they were jealous of him, of the attention he got, of what his miracles wrought. They saw the miracles. They were there. But that ultimately, that every sacrifice in the old covenant, every goat, every sheep, every bull or oxen, every pigeon, every sacrifice all pointed to what Christ came to do. In the old covenant, all those sacrifices, is interesting, interesting, it says that blotted out sin, that the, the blood of bulls and goats, literally, it's, the, the word that's used is it smeared over sin, which is kind of graphic, because the, the, the sacrifices were graphic. Uh, it's something that's really very, um, I don't know, it's fascinating to me that, that we live in a society, I'm not mocking it, I don't think we should all live in a slaughterhouse, but we're very removed from death. But in death, in the original system, death was very public in the sense that you brought your family to that sacrifice. Your kids saw the priest slit that throat. Your kids watched their father hold the goat or the, the lamb or whatever it was to bleed that thing into a basin and then watch the priest splash it against the side of a burning hot altar. I don't know if you ever smelt burning blood. I've smelled it a couple times working on an ambulance. It reeks. It's so nasty. It's one of the worst smells that's out there. Amen. And so they would, just to, to see that smoke rising up, and your kids see that, Right? Your, your, your kids observed this, and there was a picture that was being handed out, and that is that, that sin destroys, that it always destroys. And so what the blood of bulls and goats did, it smeared over sin for a time. But that's why John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God. Because for the first time in human history, there wouldn't be a smearing or a temporary covering of sin. But the true sacrifice, the true payment for sin was on the earth and was here. And so because Jesus Christ went and offered himself as the Lamb of God and shed his blood, literally judged by his Father for our sin, taking upon him, and it's, it's the, the imagery is very, uh, I don't know, 
peace-giving. The, the scripture tells us that he that knew no sin, he didn't know it intrinsically, he had never experienced it, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God, that our sin was, became such a part of him or upon him that his, the scripture tells us he, he became it, he lived it in a sense, even though he was without sin, he was the sinless one. That he says that he took our sin and he nailed it to his cross. That our wrong, that our doing, our moral wrongness, not just things we've done or the things we've thought, anger, rage, judgment that we've heaped on people, that was all heaped on Christ. And then in rising from the dead and all the witnesses to his resurrection from the dead that have been recorded for us, that's the, the foundation, and anybody who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone. And so in our core belief, the reason we gather together today, it goes so far beyond the style of music we like or, uh, you know, whatever. I mean, think of all the different denominations. And, and just as a side note, I praise God for denominations because we're not all the same. We're different. We express ourselves differently. We, you know, if, if there's a, a church where people want to run around with flags, like, God bless them, Seriously. I wish I had that kind of freedom. I don't. But if, if we want to be, if, if, if our heart is, hey, I put a tie on because I want to show God that I respect him and I'm thankful, God bless tie wearers. If people say, hey, you know what, I, I come to church, I just kind of come as I am and I, I just want to see Jesus, God bless those people. But the reality is that, that you and I, we came here today simply. We didn't merit it. We didn't do anything to deserve it. There was no, uh, we weren't good boys and girls this week. It's because Jesus Christ paid for our sin. And by simple faith in that, God says, you're right with me for now and forever. All right. And so in chapter 12, as we, we've kind of gotten into this, you know, this first call that Paul makes to Christians, he says that we live our lives as living sacrifices. Again, going back to that old bloody covenant, the picture there being that, that we're no longer our own, that we've been bought with a price, we've been bought by the blood of Christ, not to be slaves or servants. Jesus told us that in John 15. He says, you're not slaves to me. He says, I call you friends. Now, we also, I think, recognize that, no, we want to serve the Lord. He's so kind to us. But he didn't, he didn't save us into slavery. He saved us into freedom and into friendship and relationship. And so that first step that we take is we say, Lord, you're, my life is yours. Right? That was the first part of chapter 12. The next part, Paul goes in and he talks about gifting and calling. And the fact that every person has gifts that God has given them. And some are kind of more on the natural level in the sense you have people that are good organizers or people that are artistic or people that, you know, whatever, all, everything in between. Because uh, I think there's a vast difference between art and organizing. I'm just kidding. But so, you know, it's, you know that kind of, that, that wherever we are, that God gifted us those. And he says that if you want to live a life that is satisfying and that is congruent with what he's doing, which is building his kingdom, he says you use your gifts for that. That's why they were given to you. Then he goes on after, I think it's verse 9 in chapter 12, where he now talks no longer about gifting, but to every Christian, he says, look, we are to live with love and without hypocrisy of that love. The idea that our call as Christians is to live, or excuse me, to love people genuinely. And we talked, what does that mean? Because in our society, very much what is, is kind of put out by every magazine, every show, every many podcasts, all that is this genuineness is doing what you feel like. And if you do something that you don't feel like doing, you're being ingenuine to yourself. 
Does that make sense? And so I just got to be me. I got to do me. And then whatever else, you know, may fall to the wayside or, or can just whatever. Pound Sam. Whereas the idea of Christian liberty or what God has saved us to is not to, that's not true genuineness. That's just selfishness. That's responding to the old nature. Genuineness is knowing what is right and doing that. That's being genuine. So when he says something to the effect of let our love be genuine or let our love be without hypocrisy, it isn't, hey, we should feel really bubbly about every single person we meet. That's not real, is it? In fact, that's impossible, right? Because there's just some people that we can, we just don't jive with them. They're just completely different than we are. It doesn't mean we have to hate them or reject them. We just, we're, there's not going to be that ooh, bubbly, mm, let's hug, you know, kind of a thing. But what we can do is we can look at each individual and we can say, you have intrinsic value to God. That Christ paid for your sin too. And that the, the idea of agape love, the Greek word agape, is a moral love. The idea that I look at a person no matter what they've done, no matter who they are, it doesn't matter, but that God wants the best for that person, right? And that's the challenge we got there in chapter 12, to look at each individual, take our own thoughts captive, our old nature that wants to rage and judge and hate and these type of things, or be jealous or whatever it is, and to reject those thoughts, turn away from them and instead call upon the truth that God has for us that each individual is made in his image and he loves them, right? And he's going to go on from that point and he elaborates on that point about how we can interact with this world, not just brethren, other Christians, but this world to, to be part of what he's doing, which is to build his kingdom. See, that's the core value here. We can do a lot of things as Christians. We can do a lot of things. And that's fine. I'm not trying to measure other things. But the thing that we are called to be part of, is building God's kingdom. And sometimes that's mutually exclusive from things that we might want to do. And last week, we just kind of talked about personal relationships, and we, we might want to tell someone off or do this or do that. And it, it shrinks God's kingdom. It, it reduces our effectiveness for God's kingdom. We have the First Amendment that allows us to say whatever we want to say, basically, in the United States of America, right? But we have to ask ourselves, do we want to exercise what the Constitution says we can do or do we want to exercise what God's kingdom calls us to do? Because sometimes those things are different. And we have to be okay with that. And so in the kind of the end, because we kind of ran out of time last week, we'll kick off uh, in chapter 12. And what I'm going to do, just to kind of get the flow of it, is read from um, kind of the end of chapter 12 and then into 13. But actually, before I do that, I want to say this. Remember that Romans is written in about 56 or 57 AD, right? So Nero... Caesar Nero, his reign was from 54 A.D. to 69 A.D. And then after him, uh, there was an emperor. And then after that guy was uh, Titus. And after that guy was Domitian. So these emperors, uh, from Nero, the end of Nero's reign is where emperor worship really began to take off. And then Titus took it to the hilt, right? And then Domitian was super into it also. So... Christian persecution started towards the end or the midpoint of Nero's reign. And from Nero to Domitian and, and a few Caesars beyond, for about 100 years, they estimate tens of millions, somewhere in their name, uh, the rent, some, some people think in the, in the number of uh, 100 to 150 million Christians are killed uh, on a systematic basis by the Caesars. So this is the place where Paul's writing this. And these are the people that Paul's writing this to. 
He's not writing it to present-day America, the United States of America, although it's applicable for us. He's writing it into a time where people didn't have rights. He's writing it in a time where it was very normal. If you didn't want a baby, you threw it in the curb out in front of your house. He was writing in a time where it was very normal to uh, uh, essentially wear a necklace, give your kids necklaces of phallic symbols. He was wearing it in a time where uh, you, the government could kill you if they wanted to. He's wearing it in a time where if you owned slaves in Rome and you committed a capital offense, you could trade your slave to be slain for you for your death penalty, and it was accepted. Sounds kind of worse than our society, right? You know, maybe a government a little bit worse than our government. So that's when he's writing this. And I think we need to take that into account. So he says here in chapter 12 and verse 14, bless those who persecute you and bless and do not curse them. We mentioned this last week. The word bless there, it's in the Greek, it's eulego. It means to eulogize, to speak well of them. That's what he's saying. But he goes on, he says, bless those who persecute you and do not curse them. Cause, you know, speak negativity to them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who reap and live in harmony with one another. And do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay, do not repay evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will re receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he says, uh, excuse me, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed uh, to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves an, uh, one another has fulfilled the law. So it's important, I think, that we read those in conjunction because, uh, and if you've heard, I've said this before, forgive me for being repetitive, but the, the, the chapters and the verses were put in much later. In other words, like when Paul wrote the letter to the Romans, he didn't write the letter and then say, now, chapter 13 of my letter and these verses. In fact, if you look, there are, to our knowledge, the Vatican has a vast store that they won't let people into, which is, that's not a statement of beef, it's just fact. But for, we don't have originals. Like, we don't have the letter that Paul wrote. But the, the copies that we do have, the Old New Testament, amount to about 5,500 different scraps. And so one of the, if you look at those scraps, the vast majority of them, and if you're interested in it, as a side note, there's only about 0.05% of the Bible that's in dispute among all the scraps that we have. 
and the dispute portions of them, none of it's theological. None of it's like, and actually, Mary is the fourth part of the Godhead. It's all things like, for example, in First Chronicles versus uh, Chronicles versus Kings. In one of the Chronicles, it says that Solomon has like forty thousand garages for chariots, which is like literally impossible. And the other side, the other in Kings, it says that he has four thousand um, uh, garages for chariots. In the in the Hebrew, the difference between forty and four is a dot. Or off to the side. So somewhere down the pike, a very careful translator sneezed or whatever, <laughs> you know, and now we have these differences. So is the Bible reliable? Very much so. Very much so. Nothing that is doctrinal is in dispute. So we need to, we just need to realize that. So, but the letters, the original letters, if you look at some of the scraps, I mean, you go on Google, you can look at some of these, and some of them are like the, God, or, uh, the uh, book of Isaiah in a full scroll, the full copy of Isaiah, the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's one of the reasons they were such amazing finds. But the, 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 all of them, when you look, it's funny, it's just like letters. No punctuation, no quotes, no periods, nothing. It's just letters. So for our sake, translators, as they, when they came along, they put chapter and verse in, so we didn't have to like shimmy through an entire scroll and go, oh, where does this go? Oh, okay, and we can just go, hey, turn to, turn to Romans chapter 13. Also, since we're just on the subject, I just encourage, a lot of times you'll hear people say, the Bible's been translated so many times, it's just, how can you trust it? And while that's a good argument, except for one thing, every time the Bible's translated, it's translated once. Uh, in other words, it's not like, the, if you have a New American Standard, is, that wasn't translated from the King James from 1611. That was translated from the 5,500 manuscripts that we have and poured over and translated into English. So the Spanish Bible was done the same way. No Bible is translated off another Bible. Does that make sense? All Bibles are translated off of those reliable scraps, scraps that some of you know date back to 200 A.D., and in fact, if you look at the Aramaic copies of the Gospels, the Aramaic copies trace back to 100 A.D. Uh, and I don't know why I'm going off on history. I just love it, I guess. I'm sorry. But the, like, for example, the Aramaic Gospels, those were what most believers had in like, their home churches to begin with because a lot of the letters hadn't been written and circulated with but yet. And so they had kind of these Aramaic collections in, in the, of the four Gospels, and that's in general what people had. Um, it's, if you think about it, you know, the Gutenberg Press doesn't come along until whatever, 1400, 1500. So the idea of a Bible in every home, that does, that's not real until like the 1800s. It's really interesting, huh? Because we just associate that our time has always been everybody's time, right? Like Paul was just like cruising along with all the, you know. No. It was rare for a church to have that kind of stuff. They had the old covenant, but it was rare. And for every believer to have a Bible, that literally doesn't happen until London and the United States, essentially their coalition gets, you know, different entities begin to pop up and say, let's get the word of God to everyone. That's not until like 1800s. Most people just walked having heard that God loved them. <laughs> and they're like, hey, I should love other people. It was a good idea. And then they would go to church and, and maybe there might be a Bible there. It's kind of wild. The church came way before the Bible did. The, the Nicene Council doesn't happen until whatever, 343, 50 AD. So Christians have been loving Jesus and, and winning souls for Christ long before the Bible was in, was in their hands. I'm not, I love the Bible. It's reliable and wonderful. Uh, but it's, it's um, important to remember we can, we can appreciate what Jesus did even if we don't understand all the scriptures.
That was a really weird point to launch off on. All that to say is that when we look at Romans chapter 13, it's right with Romans 12. It's not a new chapter. It's not a new idea. It's not any of that. It's the flow out of individual responsibility to love people. Does that make sense? So when we read chapter 13, we don't, dis, we don't uh, you know, it's not disattached from chapter 12. It's not like let your love be without hypocrisy until it's an elective official and then screw that guy. You know, that's not what he's saying. He's coming here and he's saying, look, we're, our love is to be without hypocrisy. When people persecute us, we don't persecute back. When someone says evil about us, we don't say evil back. We bless them. We eulogize them. We say, well, I, hope, I hope God's best occurs in their life. And it's with that in view, it's with that uh, context, with that resource that he jumps in. He says this, now let every person be subject to the governing authorities. That can be very hard for us. Our country was founded on rebellion, right? Originally, there was a desire for, for religious um, freedom, and people come over. If you do research, it's pretty fascinating. If you do research on the reasons listed for the United States breaking away from England, religious per persecution is really one. And at that point, there was no religious persecution anymore. The king was not trying to influence or force the, the, the Church of England on the U.S. anymore. Honestly, and I, I don't want to start a riot, but if you go and read the history behind it, it had to do with the forefathers wanted to take more indigenous land, and the king was saying no. No, you can't expand into the indigenous people's lands anymore. We didn't like being taxed by the king. No taxation without representation. The original rebellion of our country had actually very little to do with religious freedom because that had already happened once the, the, the pilgrims left. The, the, the rebellion of our country against England had to do with money and land. I love the United States of America. I was in the National Guard. I would have shed my blood for the country. But let's be honest about what the Bible calls us to do. Because it calls us to love people and to be subject to the government. Now, I know that that prompts a lot of questions. And I even have a section. It's, it's in red. When do we get to disobey? Okay? So just know, it's all right. It's America. We'll get to when we get to disobey the government. But the reality is that the call for Christians to love is so that we can build God's kingdom, right? That's what we're talking about this whole time, is seeing people get saved and come to Christ. The gospel is the primary concern of every single believer. The reality that forgiveness comes by grace through faith, that God is merciful and loves every human being on the planet. That's our priority. And if we were to go, and there's many times that, that uh, both Peter and Paul mention the same idea of being subject to the government. When Paul... Um, when Paul writes to uh, Timothy, he says we ought to pray for the government so that we can live a quiet and a peaceable life. See, the reason that we're called to submit to the government is not because the government is always right. The reason we're called to submit to them is so they'll leave us alone. That's literally why. And so that we can have good testimony with people around us is that we're not troublemakers. 
Now we can get to what about the country and what happens and the, the quote we all love that for evil to prevail, good men do nothing. I highly encourage you to look that quote up and to read about it because it was written or said in a meeting by a pseudo bishop, not under the best terms. But to understand that we have this calling to be submissive to the government. Does it mean that we're to obey them in everything? No, we'll talk about that. But we're to listen to them. And he tells us why and how to do it. He says, there's no authority except from God, and those that, uh, that exist have been instituted by God. Daniel reinforces that. He says that God chooses the lowliest of men to be leaders, men being human beings, to be leaders. So you want to know why we always have bad leaders? Because God chose lowliest of men. And it doesn't matter what side of the, 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 the aisle you're on. I mean, honestly. He says that he raises them up. You can go, not in our country, because we vote. Really? Is that, is, I mean, is, that, is it somehow a ballot? God's like, oh, dang, I was going to raise up a leader, but you guys have a representative democracy. You foiled me. No. He does what he wants. You say, how? I don't know. Maybe he encourages a bunch of people that would vote one way not to vote. Maybe he encourages a bunch of people to vote another way to vote. I have no idea how he does it, but he says that he raises up a leader and he puts him down. You know, you have the example of Nebuchadnezzar who conquers the known world. And then he boasts and says, look how mighty I am. And then God humbles him. And it says his hair grows out over his body and his nails begin to grow out. And he was humbled like a beast, right? And so there he is, just running around like a beast, which would be really weird. But after that time, I can't remember how many years it is, he comes back and he, and he has his testimony and he says, hey, God raises leaders up and puts them down. I know, I ran around like a beast for a bunch of years. So we have to, we have to understand that the, the government first is God-ordained. And the word, when the, the, the word there where he says that he uh, uh, is instituted, that word instituted, it means that uh, it's determined, he determines it to come or to go. He decides what government is going to be there, right? Now he's going to tell us, Paul's going to tell us what the government is supposed to do. Verse 2, or uh, excuse me, in, in a little bit. Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. So the question becomes, does the person who resists the government incur judgment from God or incur judgment from the government? And really the answer is yes. If you resist the government, what happens to you? Judgment ensues, right? Typically. I mean, you can like run to Canada, I guess. But if what you've done is bad enough, most countries will extradite you to the United States for what you've done, depending on what it is, right? So there's an obvious yes, that if you resist the government, you will incur judgment, especially in things of a moral criminal nature, right? So do you incur judgment from God? Well, that's interesting. I would say this. Number one, as Christians, we know our sin is forgiven, Right? So sin is not imputed to the Christian. If you're like, what are you talking about? Go listen to like two months worth of Roman teachings. But so sin is not imputed to the Christian. So the judgment that we incur, we know that we, every Christian, every non-believer will too, but every Christian will stand not at the white throne, but at the bema seat judgment of Christ. And that which we have done, which is of little worth or, or, or is worthless, wood, hay, stubble, as 1 Corinthians 3 puts it for us, that that will be burnt away. It will be taken from us. If we live our whole life and our primary responsibility to ourselves is to thumb our nose at the government, 
to have a rebellious spirit, then you will stand before God and he will burn that from you. I don't know what that means entirely. It doesn't sound cool. It sounds like it's going to be a very disappointing experience. But rebellion can't inherit the kingdom of God, can it? And a soul full of it cannot be in the presence of God. So rebellion will be removed. So will you be judged by God in a sense? Yes. If you live a life of rebellion to the government, there will be judgment for that. But also in the physical sense, if you live a life in rebellion, or unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, even a moment of rebellion in this life can earn judgment from our government, right? He's going to go on from that place. He says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. Now, obviously, this is talking about normal government stuff, right? If you want the government to leave you alone, you can take steps to do that, right? Um, You know, fill in the blank on almost any crime, and you could probably avoid it. You know, I don't know, pick a crime. Theft. DUI. I'm not mocking anybody who had a DUI. That seems like one of the most avoidable crimes in the world, isn't it? I'm drunk. I'm now not going to drive. See how I did that? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, again, it's not, I'm not supposed to be mocking. I'm just saying that he's making this point saying, look, if you don't want the judgment of the government on you, then don't do bad things. That's what he's saying. So that we as Christians were called to live in a way where we're giving honor to the laws of the land. He's going to go on. And he says there, Um, Verse 4, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, this is a physical idea. In other words, temporal time. He's not saying that every elected official or every uh, uh, person who holds authority in the world is a godly person. So for us, if we, a lot of times in our Christian vernacular, excuse me, if we're talking about someone and you say, or I say, oh yeah, oh man, that, that person, that, that, that gal is just, she is God's servant. I'm saying that this person loves Jesus and has dedicated their life to serving Jesus, right? Isn't that what I'm saying? So, But that's not what this means. He is not saying that every single person who has any authority in the world is just that person who loves God and serves. That's asinine, right? That's crazy. That, that, that cannot be true. What he's saying is that God is sovereign, and he elevates every authority, and then that person is God's servant. He, that person is then has a responsibility to God, whether they acknowledge it or realize it, to then execute justice. That's what he's saying. He's not saying that every leader or every person of authority is godly. We know that's not true, right? But what he is saying is that that person has a responsibility to execute certain duties to, uh, in, in a country or in a county or whatever it might be. Now, you go, well, what happens when they don't? What happens when they're corrupt? What happens when this? Well, I think if you want to look at an example... Um, every single time that Israel gets so far from God in the Old Covenant, and he says, I'm going to raise up the Babylonians, or I'm going to raise up uh, the Amorites, or I'm going to raise up, and, he, and there's some entity that he says, I'm going to raise up these people, and I'm going to use them, and they're going to attack my people. And then my people will cry out to me, and, and so on and so forth. It's obviously probably another sermon to talk about that, but that's what happens, Right? And sometimes when that happens, the, the aggressor, the, the nation that God raises up 
and attacks Israel, they go too far and they begin to oppress and enslave Israel. And God, what does he say? He says, I'm going to judge that nation now. They had a responsibility to do this. They didn't do just that. They then went to oppress and enslave my people, and now I will judge them for their unrighteousness. So just because we have these truths that are being told to us, that we have a subjection to the government, that we're to listen to what they have to say, just because they're called the servants of God to execute justice and God's wrath, Remember, that's a reference to what he said above in chapter 12 about God's wrath, that there's a, they are exercising justice on moral crimes. And he says that if, that if a person, we can take comfort in, that if a person uh, uh, with authority abuses it, that they will be accountable to God. So it's, it's, we're not at all making any kind of statement that somehow we just, we're just blind and we just do whatever they say. And, and it, no, we're saying, look, there is an institution that God has created in every country. And these words have to be true all the way from Nero to now, right? For all the kingdoms of all the world for the last 2,000 years, and really it's from Daniel and beyond, this has always been the truth. This has always been God's call. Why? I can't emphasize this enough. Because what kingdom do you want to build? You know, it's funny because a lot of times people point to uh, prohibition and they say prohibition was a failure. And, they, and that's a, it's, a, it's yes and no it's, to some extent. If you call lower, substantially lower domestic violence calls uh, in, in, in that time a failure, then yeah, it was a failure. If you call unemployment significantly lower during that time, a failure, then yeah, prohibition was a failure. If you look at crime statistics and unemployment, violence against women, during prohibition, it's significantly lower. Significantly lower. But you know what prohibition didn't do? It didn't stop people's need to self-medicate because they reject Jesus. See, one of the questions I think that gets brought up in our minds is, what about our country? For evil to prevail, good men must do nothing. But see, here's the thing. I don't think loving people and praying and interacting and being involved in hospitality and looking upon others and wanting them to know Christ and being kind to them, I don't think that's nothing. In fact, I think that dealing with the heart issue is actually pretty important. Would I love to see certain legislation? Sure. I would love our country to stop killing babies. I would love it. But you know, if we made it illegal again, I'm not poo-pooing that, it's not going to stop the heart, is it? See, our mission transcends trying to preserve a nation. It transcends it. It's better than that. Because our mission is to ultimately build God's kingdom. The thing is, we, we already know what happens to the U.S. eventually, right? We've read the back of the book. We know how it goes down. I'm not saying, hey, let's just flush it. It doesn't matter. I'm just saying we already know. The United States, at one point, will bow its knees to the Antichrist and join in that. In a universal persecution of Jews and Christians. That will ultimately lead in death for them. We already know that. Are you saying, oh, you know, forget it. It doesn't matter. No. I'm saying that trying to, or thinking that will somehow establish God's kingdom and all of his values on this earth in any nation is just not true. 
But, politically not true, but when we walk in what we are called to and what the Spirit has given us, God changes lives, doesn't he? When you're kind to someone who's down and out, does that, does that open up their heart to you? See, we can't legislate righteousness. I'm not saying give up the fight. I'm not, I'm not even commenting to that. I'm saying our expectation of God's work in this world has nothing to do with any kind of political landscape or, or anything to do with any kind of economical landscape. You know, it's got nothing to do with that. That our call and, and the, 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 the forgiveness of Christ and the joy of the Spirit and the power and, and all that, it's, it's all eternal in value. So that should be our focus. That should be our primary move is to be involved in people's lives, loving them, caring for them, giving them the gospel, letting them know there's forgiveness for sin. There's forgiveness for that rottenness in your and my heart. And there's cleansing. You know what's better than prohibition? People that don't want to drink. I'm not against, I mean, alcohol is what it is. I, you know, working on an ambulance, I've seen a lot of bad things that happen from alcohol. But you know, you want to have a beer with your burger? I don't care. But you know what? You know what's a bummer? You know, we can try to try to crack down on pot and stop it and all that. That's fine, I guess. I mean, whatever. But you know what's better than that? People that don't have to try to soothe their anxiety with weed. Isn't that better? The people that go, I don't have to go to this dispensary. Not because you told me I can't, but because I found Christ in my life and the joy that it gives me. The peace that I have, that this world and, and, and what it's got, it, I'm going to be okay, regardless of what happens in this world, regardless of what laws get passed or don't get passed or whatever. That's better, right? So when we elevate our thinking away from the temporary measures of this world and look and say, wow, there's an opportunity, maybe this afternoon. Maybe you're going to leave here today. Who knows? Maybe you'll leave here today and go to the store. And you'll be in line with someone. And they'll be chapped or they'll be sad or whatever it is. And somehow the Holy Spirit will open up an opportunity. You'll be like, hey, you know what? Man, I don't, I don't want, I'm not trying to like dig into your business, but are you okay? Oh, you wouldn't, oh man, it's crazy. This, divorce or my folks or whatever. Could I pray for you? Right here in the line in SIDS? We could go outside. <laughs> you know what? Can I tell you, man, can I tell you maybe about a Jesus that loves you, a God that cares about you? You might go home and have the opportunity. You might, who knows? Maybe you get in a fender bender on the way home and you can just be like, son of a, rah! or you can just get out of your car and be like, hey, are you okay? No, I, I forgive you. Or will you forgive me? I don't know whichever one it is, right? <laughs> it's cool. God loves you. It's just a car. It's just a car. It's just polyurethane and steel. That's all it is. It gets me from point A to point B. Can I tell you about my Jesus? Can I give you some comfort before the police get here? Right? And one of us gets a ticket. You know, whatever it might be. Because that's what people need. 
If you get out of the car and you're just like, oh, I can't believe this, or you're probably one of those weed smokers and you're token up in your car, you know, then what are they going to do? Oh, but do you, here's an invite to my church. You know, it's like, <laughs> please don't. But to actually walk as Christ has called us to walk, that's what he's talking about. So he says, look, part of our personal walk with Jesus is not to try to stick it to the man. That's never part of our call. Our call is to live a quiet and a peaceable life. So the government leaves us alone. So we're free to tell everybody Jesus loves you and paid your debt forever to Christ. Or to, to his father, I should say. That's what this is about. And so Paul says, hey, especially among Nero. Nero, about in the beginning of his reign, was very, uh, very kind. I don't know if you know that. If you, if you read it, it's very fascinating. Nero built gymnasiums in Rome in outlying areas for, for uh, uh, the Romans, for, even for youth and stuff like that, to be able to do things and run around in. Nero had um, a lot of uh, uh, public um, uh, help assistance. Uh, the, Rome was about a million people around Nero's time, the biggest city until London, Victorian London. And he, about 200,000 people, a, a month got a, a share of, of corn that essentially could kind of feed you, uh, you know, through, through, through a month. Nero had social programs, all sorts of stuff. And it's interesting because we know not from the Bible, but extra biblically know that, that right about the time that Paul goes to Nero, right, because he goes to him the first time, and, and he then, we don't know how it went down, but we know after that visit, he's not executed by Nero, but he's sentenced to house arrest for a number of years, which is where the book of Acts ends. So, so Paul is in house arrest via Nero. And it's after that point, right after that point, where Nero goes off his rocker and begins to just execute every Christian he can find. And it's, the thing is, it's Christians in that venue that changed Rome. You know, there were Christians that were, uh, they were burnt alive. Nero himself would take Christians, confessing Christians. The, the way a lot of them, the, the way they got caught, you go, well, how'd they get caught? Uh, there were actual, like, checkpoints in Rome. And um, you had to burn incense to Caesar. And so there'd be a couple of Roman guards there, and, and they would, you'd, you'd walk by this checkpoint, and they'd be like, hey, we need to see your card this shows that you've burnt incense to Caesar. And there were little cards. Little, they found them. You can see them in history, these little cards that validated you as having burnt incense to Caesar and acknowledged him as divine. And what would happen is Christians would come up and be like, I can't do that. And they'd be like, you better do that. And they're like, I can't. And so they'd just be arrested on the spot. No due process, no nothing. Just, uh, just arrested, taken to Roman prison. You know, one of the reasons Paul continually praises people that come visit him in prison is in Roman prison, if, you, if people don't bring you food, you don't eat, right? If people don't bring you clothes, you, not, you sit in jail naked. Like, if your family forsakes you in Roman prison, that's it. You just get nothing until you starve to death and die. Very different from our prisons. So what's, what's happening, or what, what ends up happening, is Nero's putting people in prison. Um, there were even Roman uh, soldiers that were known to take bribes to give you a card that said that you had burnt incense to Caesar, even if you hadn't, just so you wouldn't be slain. But a lot of Christians wouldn't take that card. They'd go and they'd be in prison, but they'd immediately typically go into the games in the Colosseum. And so you'd see a lot of these Christians, they'd give them like a spear or they'd give them a sword and a shield and they would release lions 
And so the Christians would typically fight the lions, and some of them would win. Some of the Christians would win and kill the lion or lions in this fight. And so then they would send out a gladiator, and the Christians would throw down their swords and their shields, and they'd stand there and preach the gospel as they got ran through by the gladiator. It was a monk that ended the gladiatorial games as he was standing in the middle of the Colosseum, pleading not for just his life, but for morality and the giving the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and, and the, the Caesar of the time heard it, was moved by it, and stopped the gladiatorial games. It was Christ. And it wasn't Christ voting Caesar out. It wasn't Christ voting out the games. I'm not saying you shouldn't vote. I'm just saying that that didn't change Rome. The Senate didn't change Rome. The Caesars didn't change Rome. The attempt at overtaking a government didn't, seize, didn't change Rome. Jesus Christ and his love in every individual changed Rome. And it changed North Africa. And it changed uh, what would be modern-day Turkey. And it changed Greece. And it changed Corinth. Corinth, that was an insult. You know, we have the little cookies, right? The Corinthians. Back in the day, in the Bible times, if you were trying to say that someone was just radically sexually disgusting, you'd be like, dude, you're like a Corinthian. It changed Corinth. It changed everywhere. Everywhere the gospel took hold. The message of love and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. It changed the world. Again, I can't say it enough. I'm not saying don't vote. I'm not saying that. I'm saying love people. That's what people need. Prohibition was all well and fine. Illegal weed or legal weed, it's, it's all, it is what it is. I understand it raises crime. I get it. But people don't need to stop smoking weed. They need to stop having reasons to smoke weed. They need to know that there's something better than just dulling your pain. And it's the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. So vote your conscience. Do your thing. God bless you in it. But know that your calling and the tools of your trade, of your calling, are vastly superior than anything our country can give us. Because you have the love of Christ in you. And you have the wisdom of the Spirit in you. And you have God's favor upon your life. And as you walk in that and you, you commune with him, you're going to have something to give. I would say this, though. What we, and I think we talked about this last week, so again, I guess, forgive me. But what we intake is what we output, right? So if we're constantly just intaking garbage, or it doesn't have to be garbage. I don't know. If, I, if all I do all day long, what's something I'm not interested in won't offend anybody? Uh, really nothing, I guess. But if I, let's say I'm interested in, I don't know, uh, motorcycle racing. I've seen a couple of motorcycle races in my life, and they were enjoyable. But let's say that I'm super into motorcycle racing, right? Because that seems pretty innocuous. You're like, oh, you're destroying the earth. Dang it, I can't use that one. Exhaust, I don't know. Kayak racing. No, the fish. Dang it, I can't use that one. I don't know. <laughs> but let's say you have some innocuous thing that you're interested in, and somehow it doesn't affect someone else. And you, but that's all you do and all you study, right? So if you come to church... And you've just done nothing but research kayaking and motorcycle racing. What are you going to have to talk to people about? Are you somehow just going to pull out this amazing thoughts about how good God is? No. 
And I'm not mocking anyone. Just, no, you won't. You'll just be like, I watched this motorcycle race the other day. It was incredible. You know, the guy was like on his side. I don't know how he fell over. You know, just, that's what we'll have to share, right? If it's just fishing, it doesn't matter what it is. Anything temporal that we continually fill our, fill our hearts with, that is what we will have to give back. So if we want this life, the life that says, Lord, my life's a sacrifice to you, a living sacrifice to you. If we want the joy and the peace that the Bible guarantees, then we have to invest in this. If we want to see our country change and people love and grow and all the things that we'd love to see, then we have to invest in Christ so that when we come to church and people are down and out or when we're at SIDS or wherever we are in our lives and we have one of those moments that God just delivers up on a silver platter to tell people about him, that we're ready for it. Otherwise, we're just going to have temporal stuff to give. That's just what we're going to have because it's what, we, it's what we've been ingesting. It's what we're consumed with. So I just encourage you, make Jesus your primary pursuit. And if you don't know how to do that, that's a very nebulous idea. Let's just be honest. Like, what is that even? How do I? So I don't know. Learn to study the scriptures. I'm not saying go to ceremony, uh, 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 seminary. If you want to, cool. I never did. I'm not saying sem seminary is the answer. I'm saying find someone to help you to be able to use simple tools because there's a lot of really simple tools to look in to consider and see what God is saying. Take time. And, 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 and sometimes it's hard because we're so distracted. All of us, I think, are. Take time to, to pray. Start with, start with five minutes. If you have no prayer life, just start with five minutes and say, you know what, I'm going to make an effort. I'm going to pray for five minutes. And probably, if you're like me, if you, when you begin that, five minutes is going to be like an eternity. You're going to like pour your heart out and be like... That was two minutes. Okay. You know, where do I go from here? Well, I'll pray for the government, right? Oh, I'll, I'll pray for my church. Oh, I'll pray for, right? And then, and, then, and then after, as time passes, I think what you'll find is, I, I'm pretty sure what you'll find is, like a half hour will go by and be like, dang, I have to get to work. But man, there's so many things that God wants to do. And he says, if I ask him for those things, that he'll move on those behalf. I don't understand why. It seems like he should just do them. But instead he says, no, I want you to enter in with me. You go, okay, I could sit there and analyze why he wants that, or I could just try it and see what happens. So he goes forward and he says this, pay to all, <clears throat> pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, and respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. Now we may take exception to how our tax dollars are spent. Do you know how the Colosseum was founded? I just learned this the other day. How it was paid for, the Roman Colosseum? It was paid for with all of the relics that were stolen from the Jewish temple when they destroyed it in AD 70. When Titus brought back all the slaves and all the, the stuff from the Jewish temple, all that gold and all those things, that is how the Colosseum was paid for. Pretty wild, huh? In fact, one of the standing monuments that's still there in Rome, you can still see it, is this huge... Um, arch that comes in, and it's a picture of Titus and uh, another uh, emperor. Titus was his general at the time, and it's a, it's a picture of them coming in with leading all these Hebrew slaves, holding like this giant golden menorah and all that, and it's, it's still there. You can still go see it today or look it up on the internet and see pictures of it. So we can have objections all the time 
about how things are paid for. We can say, oh, government spending or government bloats or whatever. It is what it is. But we don't get to choose how our tax dollars. We live in a, it's called a, we don't live in a democracy. It's a representative democracy. There's a difference. A democracy is the idea that we would actually vote on everything. Like, for example, it'd be like, do you want a street paved? We're going to vote on that, right? We have a representative democracy. We vote for people that we want to make the decisions for us. That's literally what I've, but we reserve the right to recall them if they're not making the decisions we want. Does that make sense? That's why it doesn't, not everything is, is just voted on. So taxes go to some really good stuff, like roads. That's kind of nice, right? No, I, I don't, unless, unless you live somewhere weird, you probably didn't uh, drive on dirt, right? Probably use the roads. Sewers are cool, right? We like it when poop goes away. We're like, this is great. Keep doing that, right? So there's certain things that the tax dollars we're really into, like we pay taxes. So he says, look, pay your taxes. The cool thing about paying taxes is that when we give the government money, we're giving them worthless stuff. That's the cool thing. Like, it's just money. It's literally just money. And even in our world, it is literally a piece of paper with nothing behind it. As the government sees fit, they borrow trillions from China. You're like, I realize China's industrious. But when did they get, you know, whatever, $10 trillion? I feel like they just went, we loaned it to you. But I don't know. So just, just money. Just there it is. But for us, it brings us comfort. And it brings necessities. But see, God already said it. He said, I'll give you everything you need. He, said, he didn't say, I'll give you what you want. He said, I'll give you everything that you need. So when the government comes along and says, you know what? We need to buy a bunch of $1,000 toilet seats. We go, I feel like that's overspending. But it's okay because I'm just giving you worthless stuff. So here's... Here's the money. I understand that, we, that money is necessary. But in the grand scheme of things, other than providing for us and as a tool for God's ministry, it's not worth much. It brings comfort and convenience, and I'm not minimizing that. But there again, it's a great tool to have. It's a tremendous slave. It is a terrible master. And I think that we need to understand that about money. So when it taxes to taxes due, we pay our taxes, right? Honor to whom honor is due, respect to who respect is due, revenue to who revenue is due. If you have, if you have employees, you should pay them. Pay them the revenue. We don't, we don't want to rip employees off. We don't want to treat them poorly. Honor to whom honor is due, you paid honor to the seat of Caesar because it was God-placed. It doesn't mean you love the man in a, in, a, in a tingly sense. You probably didn't love the man. But you also, you, could, you were called to look at him with agape and say, God loves this man. And God wants him to not do the things that he's doing, but to repent and come to him for salvation. And when we begin to exercise those realities, all of a sudden, the reality of heaven and the soon return of Christ and all these different things, they become much more important and real. And it's amazing, the, the mental health factor of, being, of rising above all the shenanigans and being like, it's going to be okay. You know, I, I don't have to sweat it. I don't have to be concerned with it. I don't have to have anxiety over it. It's going to be okay. Oh, I know that someday they'll kill Christians again. We know that. They're already doing that, right? Iran, China, all over the place. We don't rejoice in it. 
But when you read like the book of Hebrews, the, the letter to the Hebrews in these different places, what you find is God gives grace to go through whatever you need to go through in the moment you need it to go through it. And that's the truth of the matter. So if it comes down to it that they're slicing our heads off, or if it comes down to it they're passing laws that we don't like, or everything in between, it's going to be okay. We're just going to keep serving Jesus. Someday when they say, look, you can't meet publicly and say everything that the Bible says, we'll say, okay, that's cool. And then we'll sell the building, and we'll divvy up the money, a bunch of you know, home churches, and we'll say, here you go. Here's $20,000. Start a home church. Buy the stuff you need for communion. Do whatever you need to do. And we'll meet in home churches. And when it gets illegal to sing songs about Jesus, then we'll shut the shutters and we'll whisper. Meanwhile, we'll go to work and we'll tell people, hey, man, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian, man, because God saved me. He's so good. And some of us may render to Caesar our lives, and some of us may not. It was Tertullian, one of the early church fathers and historians, who said that the seed of the gospel flows in the blood of the saints. So I'm not trying to paint a bleak future, except for physically, because it is bleak in this temporal world. It's very bleak. You know, it was, it was John who wrote John in Revelation. Domnition, Emperor Domnition was searching for years for John to kill him. He was exiled, and then he got out of that. Uh, but before he was exiled, uh, Domnition was searching for him. And one day he finally found Domnition, and John got a messenger that, that Domnition's guards were coming for him. And when they came for him, he, had, uh, he was old. He's like 95 years or 90 years old at that point. When, he came, when they came for him, he, told, he, he basically had a servant to help him. And he said, hey, um, make a big dinner tonight, everything that we have. And so they made a huge dinner. When the soldiers came in to take John, he said, will you eat with me first? And they were like, all right, whatever, old man. So he ate with them. All the soldiers, Domnition's crew, specially recruited by Domnition, came to John, ate dinner with him, took him to back to Domnition. And, and uh, um, tradition tells us that Domnition was making all these threats and all these things, judged him, and, uh, and John was okay with it. And so Domnition sat down to have dinner, and as he was eating, he had John dipped in boiling oil right in front of him while he was eating. And then because John didn't start screaming in the boiling oil, Domnition, in a rage, had him pulled out of the boiling oil and exiled to Patmos, an island there in the Mediterranean that was often cold because of the wind. And there John received the book of Revelation. I share that story only because you're going to be okay. You really are. We live in a very comfortable time. And I, for one, don't want to lose any of the comforts at all. I want to retire with a trailer and just drive around. And... But you know what? That probably won't happen. It'll probably be better whatever happens. Because instead, we'll just be giving the gospel, running for our lives, seeing the world change, but not because we voted it in, because we loved it in, because we cared about people. So there's great things afoot, my friend. A very, very bright future. There's tons of people that need Jesus. There's tons of people that can share Jesus. You guys are them. And we have just a tremendous opportunity today. So don't be discouraged. Don't, let's not get bummed out about submitting to the government. 
So lastly, real quick, when do we get to cheat? When do we get to disobey the government? When the government violates moral mandate of Christ. That's where we, we break the law. And I want to be clear, we don't rebel. It's not a spirit of rebellion. It's not like, we're sticking it to the man. Screw those guys. We hate those guys. Ah, that's not our heart. We just say, no, I'm not going to do that. When they come along and say, hey, you can't use the Bible anymore. We say, mm, I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to succumb to that. When they come along and they want to say, hey, we're going to educate your kids this way. We say, no, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to have that. That's when we, we say no. When it comes and interrupts and it violates what God has commanded us to do. You have a few examples of that. You have in Acts 4 and in Acts 5, standing before the Sanhedrin, where Peter and John both say, hey, they say to the Sanhedrin, you have to decide, is it better for us to listen to God or to listen to men? That's what they say to them the first time. The second time, they say, we're going to listen to God and not to men. <laughs> and they keep preaching the gospel. So that was the Sanhedrin, which ultimately wasn't the Roman government, but it was sponsored by the Roman government at that point. So saying no to the Sanhedrin was still a pretty darn big deal. Remember, it's the Sanhedrin that went to Pilate and got Jesus crucified. They could have done the exact same thing about Peter and John. And so they said, no, we're going to keep preaching the gospel. And you also have the other side of it. For example, where Paul, Paul is about to be flogged, and he's like, gets stretched out to be flogged, and he goes, I'm a Roman citizen. And the centurion's like, dang it. Okay, because in Rome... If you, you couldn't be flogged as a citizen unless uh, you'd already been condemned by a judge. So if, if you, uh, basically the way soldiers worked, or the way guards and so forth, if you, like if, if that centurion was to have Paul flogged, the people that flogged him and the centurion and anybody who knew about it and didn't stop it would be flogged also, right? Um, it's also the reason, like in the other book uh, of Acts, where uh, Paul and all the prisoners are going to escape. You remember that? And the guards like pulls his sword out to kill himself. Because if one of the prisoners had escaped and his, his, his sentence was death, then the guard would fulfill the sentence because he lost the prisoner. So all that to say is that Rome is fascinating. No, <laughs> all that to say is, is that there's times where we use our citizenship Right? And we say, whoa, 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 no, I have, I have the right to do this. But we do it in love, and we do it in kindness, and we do it to, for the benefit of God's kingdom, not personal. And then there's times that we say, when it violates moral compass, we just say, hey, uh, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. But thank you for the suggestion, <laughs> or whatever it is you feel is appropriate at the time. Anyway, so we have a tasty lunch. We have a great God. And... Uh, I hope you're encouraged and not discouraged with the fact that he does great things and uh, we get to be part of it. And it doesn't even matter what's happening in this world. He still does great things. Father, we praise you. You're very kind to us and we thank you. Thanks for food that we get to eat uh, probably for the second time today if we wanted to. Lord, thank you for the blessings that we do have. Lord, thank you that for our Savior, for our Lord Jesus. Thank you for your patience with us, your kindness with us. Thank you that you're building your kingdom. And you told us the gates of hell will not prevail against us, uh, against it. Lord, I pray that we would be those that love human beings, that we would be those that care, that feed our enemies, or that, that bless those that curse us. Help us to walk in these ways that can seem just absolutely impossible, but yet we're called to do it. 
Lord, help us to win people for your kingdom. We pray that you would bring to us people that are uh, hurting and ready to hear your good news, Lord, to hear uh, that you love them. And Lord, we pray that there would be revival in our community, revival uh, in love, revival in kindness, revival in repentance, uh, revival in drawing near to you and, and in righteousness. So we thank you. You've been very kind to us and we appreciate it. In Jesus' name, amen. May God bless you guys.